Today we're going to pick up in Exodus chapters 25 to 27. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a good time to join because it's kind of like a new new section as we're getting into the tabernacle instructions. What happens in your Bible reading when you get to the tabernacle instructions? Yeah, they have all this stuff. You know, for us, maybe I'll kind of speed up my Bible reading. But, you know, for for the Israelites, you know, things were becoming tangible now. You know, it wasn't just wandering around. It was, there's something to do. And this this is the thing that we're to, to be about. And it ends up, you know, out of all of the things that get talked about in Exodus, the tabernacle gets the most words about it. There's a reason for that. But as we kind of think about the the tabernacle, I was trying to think of some sort of uh, analogy or illustration that, that helps you to understand it. The, the tabernacle, when you when you read about it, it doesn't explain it. It just says, you know, use this thing, put gold on it. Get this other stuff, put gold on it. And why is it like this? Well, no, you didn't have to explain that to, to anybody. Everybody knew what it was. You know, it was a, a model of something else. It was picturing something before them. And anybody who would look at it could make sense of the thing within that culture. And so I tried to think of something like that for us. And the best thing that I have so far is a mascot. So you think about, you know, a mascot for... A sports team. Uh, for myself, in high school, we were the White Deer Bucks. White Deer is the name of the town. Of course, your mascot would be a, a buck because of the name of the town you're in. But you know the 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 mascot that we had. Uh, it represented something about the team, which was symbolized in a buck. <laughs> It, strength, agility, yeah, things like this. And, you know, we're unified. We're all symbolized by this creature somehow in our athletics. But you know, people that, you know, maybe they don't have mascots and they haven't seen a sports team do something like that. They come from a foreign land and they say, why do you have this person dancing around in this costume when we're here to watch the sports game? <laughs> well, everybody there just knows. They, they know what the mascot represents. It doesn't need to be explained. You know, everybody just gets it. it you know, it's like that with the tabernacle. You know, people are seeing you know, Team Israel all pulled together with the tabernacle at the center of their community. You know, people would get what it was about, especially in a, in a culture where they had similar types of things where they would build a house for their deity, but then they would, they would, they would have to put the deity in the house and then feed the deity and all of this stuff. But it's like, well, why doesn't he eat the food ever? <laughs> That's a mystery. But it, see, there's similarities and that you know, a dwelling is, is built but it's different than the other ones. You know, the, 
this this deity does not need to be fed. Uh, you don't put his presence there. He he decides to put himself there. And so it's like that with the tabernacle. It's it's a model. It's a picture of something else. Who wants to take a guess at what it's a model or a pattern of? Yeah, exactly. That's that's what people saw. You know, one of the clues that's probably the most obvious to us is, you know, why the cherubim, you know, the guardian angels, why are they guarding the presence of God? You know, what does this look like? It's like, well, this sounds like Eden, but it's not something that you can see. You're you're outside of it. And there's only light there, and it's all gold, which is reflecting that light back to itself. And so, well, that's like, you know, God making himself known and having himself imaged back to himself. But, you know, for the sons of Israel, they're outside of that. You know, they, they, can't, they can't see that uh, happening, but they need to be able to enter into that somehow. So as we look at Exodus 25 to 27, to help you read this and understand this and think this through, it's important to see the, the structure of this. And the structure of how this text works is and something that's maybe not super obvious to you because it's so ordinary. Now look at 25.1. What does 25.1 say? Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, and this is significant. This is like in you know, Genesis chapter 1. God said. So there's something that's like, okay, this, this is the God of creation, but he's not just revealing himself as God the creator, but now as Yahweh the redeemer. And he's building on his name and who he is. Now turn to 30.11. Somebody read 30.11. Yahweh also spoke to Moses. Somebody read 30.17. All right. 30.22. Moreover, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, now who's counting these? Okay, we got four. We got four right there. Okay. 30, chapter 30, verse 34. What are the first five words? Yeah, Yahweh said to Moses, we got five. Then 31, verse 1. And then the seventh time and last time is 31, 12. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, and then what gets talked about right after that, that seventh use? The Sabbath. So you see, that's the structure. And there's a bazillion things in, in the Bible that are structured on creation. 
because God is the God of creation. He controls everything. He puts everything in, in an orderly sort of manner to communicate things about himself. And so the, the tabernacle is communicating something about creation. And you see something with that and how, how there's going to be the tabernacle and the courtyard and there's going to be all of the people that are they're going to be in the courtyard, but nobody is in the Holy of Holies. Now, another piece of the structure here, we have, you know, this group of seven, which is in here, which ties into creation. So how you're interpreting it is based on things that were taught in the creation week. Another thing that's repeated that gives you some of the structure, you see this in chapter 25 and verse 40, and it has to do with the repetition of what was spoken on the mountain. So 2540, it says, see that you make them after the pattern for them. So this is when we're talking about the tabernacle. It's like a model or something. It represents something else. You know, it's a, it's a pattern of the real thing, it says, which was shown to you on the mountain. And you keep going 2630. It says, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. And the third use, three of three, is in 27, verse 8. It says, you shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. So it's, here's what you have within this group of seven. You have a set of three, but only one set of three. So when you think about creation week, how many sets of three did it have? Yeah, there's two sets of three. And what, what was distinct about those two groups? Yeah, exactly. So what you're seeing in, in the building of the tabernacle and its structure, you're seeing the forming of something. But it, it kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger. It's like, well, where's the other set of three where it gets filled? Because we got the whole set of seven, but we only have one group of three. We need that other set of three where it's not just the place is formed, but it has to be filled, which is how you know things worked in the creation week which is how these instructions work within this like chapter 25, for example, it has to deal with light and dark. You know, it's day one in creation. Maybe the most obvious thing would be having a lampstand. Yeah. With the lampstand, there's light. Without it, there's darkness. Day two of creation, is paralleled in chapter 26. I was talking about sky and sea are the things that are made, which is, you know, why do you have blue curtains? <laughs> it, this is you know, a link to the sky. And day three picks up in verse 31 which has to deal with the land and it 
gets down to curtains, wood, things like this. So there's this picture of creation that's being given in this garden within creation where God is the focus of everything, but as things stand, the people are outside of that fellowship with God. So when you, you're looking at this structure of how the, the tabernacle works within the community of Israel, what do you think is significant about making these connections back to Eden in their minds? How is their relationship to God different in that moment than in the past with Adam and Eve? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. They're seeing that they're outside, but they're seeing there's a way to go back inside. So it, it communicates hope to them. It's a, this can be regained. Uh, there can be reconciliation. So it wasn't, you know, you're forever cut off and there's no way back in. So there's a way back in, but it's not us going to him. It's God coming to us. Then you see all sorts of, similarities, you know, throughout scripture, like, you know, Adam was put to sleep and God was present there to bless him. Then later on, Abraham is put to sleep and God is present there to bless him and his future descendants. You see that extend from Isaac to Jacob, who goes to sleep at Bethel, which is the house of God, which is going to be linked into the the tabernacle, I see God keeps showing up to be present with his people. And that, that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it continues to when Moses is born and called in the first you know, three chapters of Exodus, God is present and he keeps bringing himself to people. You see him, he brings his presence to the sons of Israel at the Reed Sea, and he draws them out just like he drew Moses out, and he's present with them. And he's showing that his plan all along from creation was to have this relationship with his people where they, they imaged him or reflect him back to him. And he's carrying out his creation purpose of making his glory known and filling the earth with it. So it extends to the ends of the earth. But what you see in the tabernacle is, you know, his glory is just filling the tabernacle. It's like, but how does it, you know, extend out to the people who are outside in the court and how do they get to come into that? So that, you know, everything is tabernacle. So it's like, there aren't any walls or boundaries to it anymore. It's just everything is that. So what, what was it that stood between, you know, the Israelites and the tabernacle in front of them. Yeah. It was the grill, which was a place of, you know, fellowship. You know, people would gather around 
you know, a, a meal together. But it's like, you know, how do we come back in to fellowship with God where, where we eat together at the same table? It's, well, some sort of sacrifice has to be made that deals with the sin problem. Because as we had talked about what the law teaches, we talk, you know, it teaches that God is holy, man is sinful, and you need a, a God-man mediator to bring the two back together. Everything within, you know, the first covenant law instruction worship is centered around teaching those concepts. And that's just drawn out in more detail with the tabernacle and its furniture. So the two things that the tabernacle is really about, it's about worship and relationship. So this is how you worship God. He even tells you how to do that and how, how, how that relationship is to be understood and enjoyed. And when you look here in these first two verses of chapter 25, notice God's focus on the heart. Let's read 25, 1 and 2. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak with the sons of Israel so that they take a contribution for me. From every man whose heart is willing, you shall take my contribution. So does Yahweh just come and say, look, I beat up all your enemies. I could totally squash you guys, so give me your money and your stuff. He doesn't do that. But he says, take a contribution for him, but he's looking for the cheerful giver. You know, as we think about it from like 1 Corinthians standpoint. He's looking for the person who has a heart who is uh, willing. You know, he, he wants the converted, regenerate people of Israel to come and serve him. Yet he wants them to come with a willing heart because that's what God is interested in. He's not there to coerce them, but he's there to regenerate them, to love him. And all of this worship is, you know, again, it's communicating God is going to dwell among his people. And now in chapter 25 here, I told you this parallels into day one in creation. And starting there in verse 10, you see he, an ark is the first thing that's made. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. And this ends up having gold rings. There's poles that they carry it on and there's a lot of other little pieces to it that we'll start to talk about but the significant thing about the ark is it would represent God's presence you know where his glory is which you know, this idea of glory is tied to light and truth and reflection of who God is you know, as a display that he's majestic in his holiness, but also, you know, the morality of his holiness. You know, he's, there is no, there's no darkness in him, which means there's no lack of knowledge of the truth, but there's also no darkness in him and that there's no sin in him. And there's no sin that can be brought, you know, to him and corrupt who he is. So this you know, testimony of, the light of the revelation of the glory of God in the ark communicates his truth and his love. And you see, with, with that, throughout the construction, it wasn't just, you know, 
build it however you want, but it was to, to build it with great skill to show you know, reverence in your worship to God, that you do it how, how he wants you to do it, but you also want to do it with excellence because of the one that you're doing it for. You know, it's not about, well, what's efficient and how can we just get the job done? And it's just, you know, it serves the purpose of being structural. But it's, well, we got to have the structure and it does have to be able to stand. But uh, when God made his creation, you know, it, it had a built-in attractiveness to it as well. It says that that needs to be with, within this, which when he starts adding the, the gold and stuff and, you know, there's the different jewels and stuff that are described. They're all things that are mentioned back in Genesis chapter 2. It talks about you know, the, the gold of the land was good, you know, there in Eden. And so you, you know, for the Israelites familiar with that, they're here. It's like, oh, this is all the stuff that they had in Eden, and we have it out here in the middle of the desert. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's this picture of, you know, this garden breaking into the, the desert that people can enter into and in our English Bibles it talks about on top of this ark verse 21 it says you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark we got that word mercy seat from our beloved friend William Tyndale yeah and what he's translating there is the word kippur. You know, have you guys ever heard of Yom Kippur? And what does that mean? Yes, yeah, the day of atonement. So the word that William Tyndale's translating is just atonement. It's you know, what are they putting on top of the ark? Atonement. Since you know it. You shall put atonement on top of the ark. But Tyndale's trying to think, how do I help somebody to, you know, understand what this is? You know, it's it's a display of God's mercy, but it's a place where some sort of sacrifice is made on it. So, you know, he uses, he adds in the word seat to communicate that sort of concept. You know, it's the atonement place. It's the place where, uh, a ransom is made. It's a place where a substitute is offered up to connect somebody to the ark of the presence of God. And then what was inside of the ark? Yeah, so there's the testimony, which he's going to give to them. You're going to have the Ten Commandments in there. We read earlier in Exodus, there's going to be a jar of manna, and we're also going to get Aaron's staff in there as well. But what you're seeing communicated in you know, how this is being built out is this concept of justification through substitution, you know, being made right with God by somebody else doing it for you. You see, you know, we don't bring ourselves to him, but there's, it's atonement is how we get back into the presence of God. This is going to be central. It's like, you know, the number one thing going on at the tabernacle is this is the presence of God to come dwell with man. But how do we get there when we're outside and 
he's inside atonement. Yeah, this is the something that we see how this develops in you know, Jesus, who in a way is the mercy seat. It was symbolizing that the Son of Man who came to give his life as a ransom for many, to pour out his life for many. Uh, in Hebrews, he's taught talked about, it's talked about the, the greater and more perfect tabernacle. It says, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. But it's like, well, how did he enter? Well, well, by being everything <laughs> in the tabernacle, but you know, being the priest who came in and being the sacrifice and being the atonement and connection point between God and man because he is the God-man. Now, I've mentioned, you know, everything gets covered in gold. What's the significance of gold, you think? Yeah, part of it's, you know, something that's, that's made pure. Yeah, this, and this gets built out in analogy throughout Scripture about the refiner's fire who, who takes that precious image of God and he, he drives out all of the dross by bringing fiery trials to remove that so that the reflection of himself can be seen in that gold. Now, that sort of theology was built out in creation with the object of gold, and it's being taught here within the tabernacle as well. Now, the purpose of the gold is about God's glory being reflected because when you have all this stuff is gold and then you put light inside of there, well, it reflects the light back to itself, which is the concept of, you know, the God who is light. He shines his light you know, on us so that we would reflect him back to himself. And we also got the cherub. What comes to your mind when you think about cherub? Nothing? Okay. <laughs> okay, imp-like demonic Yeah, sounds really similar to the Precious Moments Cathedral. Yeah, when I, when I was 15 and unable to drive myself anywhere else and with my friend's parents whose mom loved the Precious Moments and we were on a road trip, we had to go to the Precious Moments Cathedral. And it's a real thing. It was one of the most painful moments <laughs> of my life. <laughs> Cherub don't look like that. Uh, they're terrifying creatures. You know, when they're described in Ezekiel, you know, they, they have four faces, lion-like qualities, wings. You know, they're not overweight, demonic children things. <laughs> but what, what did you know, the, the, the cherubs or the, the cherubim, where did they first show up in Scripture? Yeah, outside of Eden, right? And there's some sort of flaming gyroscope sword thing, and it's, it's an entire angel army that's blocking the place 
and you know you're seeing this and you know there's the ark but the the cherubim are guarding that you recognize it. we can't we can't go back through there but it's like it it's cherubim the the word means to ride out you know, think and that's exactly what they did you know if you wanted to try to walk back into eden like turn around <laughs> you know because of your sin you can't come in they were guardians of god's presence you know they attended his his throne and guarded it and went out to do whatever he sent him to do which was primarily guarding his holy presence and so you see this tension with the tabernacle it's you know god wants to come dwell with with man but man needs atonement to enter into that relationship so well how is this going to to work how is that connection going to be made and israel and their worship they end up being given a holiday yom kippur which means day of atonement which they would celebrate once a year and one guy the high priest could go in once a year one time most people never saw these things it would be that one guy once a year who went in that that saw what was in the holy of holies with the ark the place of atonement the cherubim all of these sort of things and all of this points to to god's presence you know he's going to be present you know in the mercy seat and making atonement the ark is his presence coming among his people you have the testimony of the law that's placed in the ark which teaches people you know you need to learn about god's holiness and you need to learn about your sinfulness and your need for a god man mediator and this is the piece that gets added who atones for you who who makes you what you need to be to bring that relationship back together and so for the you know, other priests that aren't the high priests, you know, the other Israelites that are outside of this, they had to have faith that God existed and he rewards those who seek after him, as it says in Hebrews 11. You know, they, they walked by faith and not sight. They, they didn't see the ark. So it's, on, you know, this is why people need to stop drawing pictures of some things because it, you know, you always see these guys with, you know, tall hats that are carrying around this big box on these poles and that you can see all of the ornate design and stuff on the ark, but you can't. It's it's covered in sea cow leather, which is probably some sort of seal or something. Like what you would see is the pole and there's the gold rings, but there's this big blue piece of leather that's totally covering the ark nobody sees it so when they they pick it up and move it it was like they just had to believe that it was there they had to they had to have faith that the testimony was in there but remember they got two copies of it you know there's one that you know copy of the law that goes inside of the ark which is going to be you know significant for the word of god being in jesus who is the presence of God, but they also had their own copy on the outside that 
they, they could read. But they had to believe also that by faith, the manna was in there. You know, by faith, we believe that God provided for our ancestors. You know, by faith, we, we believe that Aaron's rod is in there and that God is a protector of his people. And just as he was faithful to them, then he's going to be faithful to us today. What you see in those, those three elements of what's inside the ark, you see, you know, who God is. He's a protector, provider, and guider. You know, with Aaron's rod, he protected. With manna, he provided. With the tens, ten words, he guided. Which I know is bad English, but it helps it give some flow to the words so you can remember it better. Now, also within this parallel to day one in creation, light and dark, we have the table of showbread, Starts in verse 23. This also gets talked about as the bread of presence. Now think about, this is verse 30, you see that. You, know, you shall set, set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Now, did, did they do this because he was hungry or because the law instructs and what do you think that this would instruct Israelites about, given their previous experiences with bread? Yeah. Yeah, it's, they, God provides bread from heaven. You know, he provides the provision for what you need but the provision that you need ultimately is atonement. So atonement gets the priority when you move out from that. So, you know, God is present to provide that. Well, how do we know that? He gave us bread from heaven. And what, what we need more than anything is to, to live by that testimony. You know, man, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the testimony uh, of God and having faith in those things that they didn't see. You know, just like we, we have faith that this whole Exodus event, event happened, though we didn't see it in, in a way. It, it can only be seen by faith. This bread shows that God is present, once again, like everything does in the tabernacle. But he's present to provide what is needed and to bless others. You think about... we. The breaking of bread. When you're talking about breaking bread with other people, it's synonymous with what word that starts with F and has the word ship at the end? All right. I had to state that in a way that I could get you to give me the right answer. <laughs> yeah. So this is another thing. So, well, how does God, it's like he provides atonement and then that provides blessing and that provides Fellowship, you know, it provides bringing all of those things back together. Because remember, it's a connection back to Eden, ultimately. So the, the text isn't just left wide open that you just think of something that sounds biblical to connect it to. It's like, well, how does it connect to what that relationship was like in Eden, where God 
provided for his people, but what broke that relationship and what needs to happen to bring it back together. But you remember, you know, God gave a picture of that and the sacrifice of the first animal by which he provided covering for Adam and Eve, which, you know, again, it's that word kapoor. It's, you know, it can be translated as, as atonement or covering. But so, you know, God, God comes to his people and he provides that. So God, and given this instruction, given the, this law instruction, that's the word Torah, it means instruction. He, he didn't give them the instruction to save them, but instruction in how that salvation would work. To, in a way, the, the tabernacle is like a, a gospel tract, but it's lived out in front of you and you see how it all works and you know, these, these symbols communicate, you know, they, they speak something, you know, instead of just, you know, the, in a way it was, it was something to read, you know, instead of just having words on a page, it was, you know, the events and different things were something to be read to understand what was being taught by it. Yeah. Yeah. The the word bread is like a general word for food. You know, you talk about like putting bread on the table. You know, that same sort of concepts present there. There is a you know a tie between work and bread, which was a blessing that God provided. So it's you know work and bread is you know God's provision. But what happened with Adam was he did, God didn't remove the blessing of of work and providing bread, but now it's going to be difficult when you do it because of your sin. Does that start to answer your question? <laughs> but see, there's a connection. It's like, well, that the kind of you know work bread provision relationship that there was in Eden that can be had again. So the element of the, the curse that has been brought where we have to labor for it, it's removed because God's going to bring that kind of bread and that kind of provision to us again so that we have that kind of relationship. So you're seeing the emphasis here is on his, his presence to bless. But if he's going to do that, it's going to mean the removal of the curse. And that gets built out a little bit more later. Yeah, and... Leviticus, when we get to you know, the, the curses and the blessing, which we'll get there. Lampstand, how do you think a lampstand ties to day one of creation? In a way, this is like, wait, light, light, right, light. And it, this thing is built out like it has branches on it, like a tree, right? And remember, it's like this was instruction. It was guidance into God's life, which we talk about God's life with the term eternal life. 
It's like, well, how do you enter into to God's life? I mean, how do you enter into his light and walking by the light of who he is? Well, the lampstand is a reminder of that, of the tree of life and the pillar of fire being brought together. You know, God is the God of life, but he's also the one who guides you back into that life. So you see, it's a, you know, how do we get to the tree of life? The pillar of fire. Who's the pillar of fire? It's the angel of the Lord. And then this light, how, how long was it to burn? How long did it burn? Just sometimes, just during the day, just at night on the lampstand? Yeah, it burns continually, permanently, and why is that? He's shown, you know, his, God providing the light of himself is permanent. Yeah, that's what it's teaching. It's something that's to come and not go away. So, in Yahweh's first coming, he breaks the bondage of sin and he brings the people out. And his second coming, he comes to dwell with his people. I put it that way because now, so you'll kind of think of it in Jesus' first coming, yeah, he comes to deal with the sin problem, be the atonement, and his second coming, he comes to dwell with his people. But it's to be permanent. So when we look back at the tabernacle, it's teaching that sort of permanence, but is that lamp oil still burning today? No, because you know, that lamp wasn't meant to be that thing. It, it was a representative that, that, that God is that permanent light among his people. And it had a purpose in instructing us during that, that time. But then Jesus comes and in John 8, 12, he, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in the darkness. So you see there's an idea of provision. He's providing light, but he's also providing guidance. And he says, but we'll have the light of life, which you know, Jesus ends up being the, the tree of life or the kingdom of life who brings us. He provides for people the life that they always needed by guiding them to him, in him, and through him. So you see the hope that's being built that God will dwell with his people again, but for that relationship to happen, they need atonement. You see all sorts of language from the garden. Uh, verse 33, 25-33 is an example. It says, three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms, and the one branch a bulb and a flower. Within that, you have obvious creation language, stuff that God made. Uh, you have three cups shaped like almond blossoms, in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. So again, you have you know, two sets of three, six days. So it's a think back to Eden. The connections are being made back to that. Again, it's one of those things. That you didn't have to explain it to anybody, what it meant. It just, you know, they saw it, heard about it, and understood. You know, this is about 
God being present with his people like in Eden, but it's also a, a personal presence. And what's being taught to Israel is this is available. That kind of relationship is available and possible, and it's, it's where everything is moving. In verse 37, it says, Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamp so as to shed light on the space in front of it. The number seven connects into God's rest, you know, being brought back into his rest, his enjoyment of who he is and his creation. And they would fuel this lamp with what kind of oil, would you guess? Yeah, it's, it's olive oil, which again, this was linked to God's provision. It's like, well, somebody provided trees that grow olives so that you could take them and you would work to get this, this oil, which would represent God's abiding presence. So within this, uh, you have bread and, and olive oil, which were two major staples in you know, Israel's agriculture. And, you know, God was teaching everything that you think about in life, even just the stuff that you harvest every year and the stuff that you eat all the time. <laughs> every day, you know, think about the kindness of my provision. Which now, given that we have foods shipped all over the world and and, and whatnot, uh, you know, maybe we don't think about you know the two major <laughs> staples that we have in a in a particular region, but you know, instead we we pray before a meal, you know, recognizing God's provision and blessing, and to to give Him thanks for that. As we had talked about some of the structure within this section of scripture in verse 40 when it, it mentions you know the the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain that's part of a structure that's now signifying we're concluding something and moving to something else which is you know parallel to day one in creation to now day two and in this this is moreover you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains okay so now we're we're moving up and they're of fine twisted linen and they're blue and purple and scarlet. This is tied into creation day two. Why are the curtains blue, purple, and scarlet? And you would see them, and it would remind you, yeah, day two in creation, you know, the heavens uh, above it declare you know the majesty of God. You know, it's that sort of Psalm 19 sort of idea that was being taught through these curtains which were hung. But within this, you also it says, You shall make them with cherubim. <laughs> so it's it's like, yeah, we can see God's glory out there, so Let's go there, cherubs. Okay, there's a problem. <laughs> you know, we, we need some way to get access to them, so it's, it's, you know, it's a big keep out sign from the Holy of Holies. Like, you can't, you can't go past this curtain. 
you know, there's only one who can do that, which they see it, you know, it ends up in their worship being something being taught about the one who can do that through the high priest one time a year and the day of atonement. Nine fifty-six. There's boards in there too. They're covered with gold. Reflects God's glory throughout the sky. That's the point with that. Twenty-six thirty. We're speeding up. Okay. You you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. Here we go. Here's another transition. And we're going to day three, where God made the land, the land, yes. And there's this big veil that's created, which instructs people that there's a separation between man and God, but this veil that was placed up was you know, dominant within the, the tabernacle being the solid partition that made a distinguishing between the holy place and the holy of holies. You know, again, it's a big keep out sign that says you, you can't come in because of your sin. And so it, it points to what the law has been pointing to. God is holy, you're not, and that's why you're outside and not inside here. You're in the, the courtyard and not in the presence because you need atonement to enter in. So think about how that connects to Christ and what happened when he died on the cross. What happens with the veil? Yeah, it's torn in two when Christ made atonement. You know, when he ratified a new covenant by his blood, and it's torn, it's torn in two from top to bottom. And now I just got to get something off of my chest. This is probably more for me than for you. But people say, you know, it's torn from top to bottom because it's to show that man could never have done it. Well, who put the curtains up there? Men put the curtains up there. They got up there at some point and they, and they hung the things. But it being torn from top to bottom was showing it's God who comes down and does this. And certainly man doesn't do it. It's a right theological sort of thing. But I hear people say that. They're like, oh, it's to show, you know, because no man could get up there and tear those curtains. I was like, but at some point, some construction crew got up there and hung those curtains. <laughs> they didn't just, you know, magically show up there. That always kind of bothered me when I would hear that. <laughs> so God's plan of salvation it's being taught through the tabernacle you know he he wants his glory to fill the whole earth but to do that he's going to have to come to this earth to bring that glory and to extend it so that his glory would be reflected everywhere and it's in a way it's like he, he has to come and make everything gold you know he has to come and make everything gold so that everything reflects him and that there's not anything that's not covered in gold anywhere. But the problem is that we're separated from that. But in chapter 27, what happens with, within this is people get 
invited to use the instruments of worship. We had talked about uh, the altar. Uh, there's all of these things that they would use within their worship, but they were made out of bronze and silver and not gold. And say so you're using the lesser things that don't reflect the glory of God like it like it should. And while you you can use those, you recognize that they're not what they should be yet. You know, this is this is a picture of what what should be but isn't. And it's being you know communicated again this sort of tension that you know, we know that God's plan is to fill the earth with His glory and for us to reflect that but we're separated, but we're invited to do this, but we can't do that. But he's letting us do something that's teaching us that and telling us that this relationship could happen. But it's not like that yet. It hasn't happened, but it's holding out hope that it's possible. It's saying that relationship like in Eden is not lost. It can be regained. And so when you stand out in the court, you're recognizing, you know, there's the holy place and the holy of holies, but you're not there. You're with everybody else. Uh, you know, teaching, you know, all, all men have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, they, they've all sinned. So we're out here, we're in sinner category, and we've all fall, fallen short of the reflection of God's glory in the world. And we just have bronze and silver instruments of worship. And though Israel is unholy, they're invited to participate in teaching certain truths. And what you learn from this is Israel hasn't been cut off. You know, this relationship continues Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and beyond. God never cuts them off. He's going to keep his promises to Abraham and fulfill that covenant. Well, this is also reminding Israel of their role in the world, which we learn about in Exodus 19, which was to be what? A kingdom of priests. So you see there's this picture, you know, of the world and the tabernacle and the, the courtyard, but there's priests that would connect them to, to God, which was, you know, a microcosm of them being a microcosm to the whole world of being priests that bring, you know, the presence of God to other people. So as they, they would act this out, the priests stand between the courtyard and the holy place. They're mediators to lead unholy people in the courtyard you know, into a connection into the holy place. And the Levitical priest, what they do for Israel, Israel's going to do that for the whole world. And they end up being a, it's a discipleship and evangelism ministry. You know, they're discipling one another within the community, and they're evangelizing everybody that's watching. And people are watching. You know, you're down in the wilderness. They're up in the hills. They're like, what's going on with this thing that they move around and they set up and stuff? You know, it's communicating something to those who are watching. Another thing it teaches that, you know, Israel's just like the world. You know, they're sinners just like everybody else, and they need atonement just like everybody else. And again, and it teaches that there's hope that that kind of relationship can be had. You know, that relationship can be reconciled through God providing atonement for people. 
And also that there's a, a separation, but while there is a separation, there's a priest who can guide you in and make the unholy holy somehow. You know, a, a priest can come and make atonement and bring you into God's presence. But you're seeing, you know, these things aren't what they should be. You know, they're bronze and silver, and the priest, he has to make atonement for himself. And he dies like everybody else because the wages of sin is death. You know, and these sacrifices, we just have to keep doing them over and over and over. There's never any end to it. So it points to, you know, this, this points to the need for something better, for something final, for something that can complete the picture of what we're seeing in sacrifice and atonement and the priest and being reconciled to God. So this is helping Israel to understand this is your role in the world. You're a kingdom of priests. You're evangelists. You're, you're being called to make disciples of the nation and to tell people of the name. For today, what has changed for us within the new covenant, instead of being you know, separated from the, the temple or the tabernacle, is we've become it. And that God's presence has come in us to be a light that shines out of darkness and then to go out to the ends of the earth. To go from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth like you see in, in Acts when you know, Jesus, who was you know, the walking tabernacle ark, you know, after he ascends, he sends his spirit into his people to now be... You know, the mobile little temples that move about throughout the earth to be, you know, to this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yes, that's what's happening until that light is everywhere. And then when you get to the end of the Bible, it says there's no more temple anymore. It's like, well, why not? Because its boundaries have extended out everywhere. You know, everything's temple. You can't say, well, let's go there to worship. It's like, well, that, that's the only thing you can do. It's the only place you can be. So it's like that, that mountain garden of Eden becomes the whole place. It's the capital, but it's like everything extends out from there, and God is present everywhere with his people with the sin problem being removed. So the focus of the, the tabernacle is about you know, worshiping God which isn't just, you know, getting together with a bunch of people and singing songs and reading scripture. But we have to understand worship is everything in life. You know, everything that, that Adam could do in the unfallen world was worship. You know, the work that he did, the tending of the garden, the, the relationship that he would have with Eve and would have had with every other human from that point. You know, all, all of it, all of it was worship. I don't even want to think about that as it's you know communicated also in First Corinthians. You know, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. It's not just Bible reading, praying, church going. It's to the glory of God. But even when you eat, you know, even when you drink, even when you work, you know, even how. You think, how you dress, how you speak, all of this sort of stuff. 
which gets talked about more in Proverbs, which if you came to family camp, we got to talk about that. Otherwise, at, at this rate, just going straight through might be a while before we get to Proverbs, which is why we're going to have little special things like family camp. <laughs> so we're taught here within the worship and relationship, you know, God comes to dwell or to tabernacle in the midst of his people, which is when, you know, the Gospel of John says, Jesus, he came and he did what? Yeah, he, he dwelt or he, he tabernacled as the tabernacle, as the light to make visible the, the glory and character of God, but to make that visible in and through his people until that's the, the only kind of day that we live in. Where the, the only thing that we can see is the the glory of our creator and redeemer in absolutely everything, even including those who he made to be in his image, because we will be conformed to his image in glory. Any questions as we close here? Well, who, who would like to close us in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty of the scripture, your kindness, your mercy towards us to dwell among us, to tabernacle with us, remind us Lord that. Back to the God of all mercy, the God of all kindness, who do you fall off, who do you stand outside of but invited to draw near, not by the works of our hands, but by your kind mercy. Thank you for follows and willing to faithfully instructs, clarifies the word for us. Pray Lord that we would Take it in, meditate on it, clarify these truths that are so powerful, so powerful, and yet so hopeful for us. Help us to walk in the light of your ways, Christ. Amen.